This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize. Learn more by visiting the following website, adultliteracy.xprize.org. Privacy. What a buzzword, but also a major point of contention for the past 12 months. Yeah, parents, companies, educators, everyone's been jumping into the conversation on this topic. The proliferation of education technology has led to many questions about what and how student data is collected, analyzed, or used. As student privacy and security concerns grow, how do we respond? Last week, EdSurge conducted a panel in partnership with Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe, a global law firm that's got their eye on the privacy debate. Panelists included the co-founder of EdTech company Clever and Reach Capital Chantel Paulson. EdSurge CEO Betsy Corcoran dove into how EdTech leaders should address privacy issues while still advancing learning opportunities. Do companies need to yield to the demands and whims of privacy critics? Or can we all somehow reach a kumbaya understanding around the EdTech campfire? Now there's a topic I'm excited to talk more about. All that and more is coming at you right now. Welcome to the EdSurge podcast. Let's get started. This week, the Department of Education launched a pilot program, Equip, to encourage universities to partner with alternative education providers like coding boot camps and MOOCs to create new programs that could help students prepare for the latest jobs like software engineer. Now for something you didn't expect. Students enrolled in these hybrid programs can be eligible for federal financial aid. Ted Mitchell, Undersecretary of Education, spoke with EdSurge on how this move could shake up the higher ed industry and why the Q in the name is so critical. For the past two Octobers, we've gathered videos from the finest educators and companies for the Digital Innovation and Learning Awards, or the DILAs. This year, after receiving more than 400 video submissions, our stellar panel of judges selected winners across 15 educator, administrator, and edtech organization categories. You can see a fabulous video from each winner on our site. And shout out to uh, Superintendent S. Dallas Dance for his second DILA win. Big props to Julia Winter for making organic chemistry easier, because I definitely could have used that when I failed. And we love the network of Mozilla's hives, but we love the one in Chicago the most. So congrats to all of our fabulous deal winners. Acumen Plus's Amy Ahern knows that it's tough to finish a MOOC unless you're doing it with people you like. She previously wrote that peer pressure is one way to help you finish, and now she's back with five tips to help you connect with the community of people you're learning with. She got some great feedback from EdSurge's community of commenters, too. Some wanted to know more about her definition of community. The CEO of Mook Lab also chimed in on tools to build that community, and Ahern answered in kind. Tim Hudson doesn't like instructional lessons. In fact, he thinks that we miss out on original ideas because of them. This week, Hudson, who is the vice president of learning at Dreambox, argues that time spent being talked to is not the solution to closing the achievement gap. Tim thinks that it's got more to do with deeper learning and assigning open-ended problems like proofs in math class. And now it's time for... Kitchings. Tal Education Group a K-12 after-school tutoring service provider in China, has invested $30 million in Phoenix eLearning, which operates ZXXK.com, an online educational platform serving the Chinese school system. 
Tal would hold 32% equity in Phoenix upon completion of the investment, which is subject to government ruling. U.S. EdTech raised $116 million in September 2015, according to our analysis. The funding was spread across 16 different deals, and at least 56 unique investors participated. Civitas Learning led the way with $60 million in Series D funding, and other big winners included LearnZillion, Planet3, and Credible, which brought in $13 million, $10 million, and $10 million, respectively. And finally, for the last kitchen news of the day, Instructure's initial public offering. The company filed its Form S-1 with the SEC, offering the public a glimpse behind the scenes. The Salt Lake City, Utah-based company is currently planning to raise up to $75 million under the symbol INST. Well, that's it for the news bits. We'll move on to our podcast privacy deep dive after this brief word from our sponsor. We're willing to bet that if you are listening to this podcast, you care about education. Educating kids matters. But here at EdSurge, we care about educating adults too, particularly when they lack some of the skills that many of us learned in elementary school. Know who else cares about adult learning? Cares so much that they are offering a $7 million bonus for doing it right? The Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize presented by Dollar General Literacy Foundation. The foundations are running an X Prize competition for teams to develop mobile software to help low literate adults increase their reading skills. If you want to help the 36 million adults who read at or below a third grade level and you're into developing mobile apps, here's what you need to do. Put together a team, apply, build your app, and change the world. Go to the website adultliteracy.xprize.org to sign up. There are 36 million adults and their families whose lives you can change for the better. And 7 million isn't too bad either. The registration deadline is December 10th, so sign up now. Now, it's not every day that you get legal representation, startup representation, and large company representation in the same room to all talk about this big, big, big issue of, wait for it, data privacy. Nobody really used this phrase five years ago, but ever since the opening and closing of data warehousing company Imbloom, everyone's been asking how student data is used and whether or not it's being used for good. Here at EdSurge, we're always interested in getting seemingly disparate parties talking to one another. Our own CEO, Betsy Corcoran, moderated a panel on data privacy with four kingpins of this discussion. Emily Tabatabai, an EdTech privacy expert at the Oric Law Firm, Dan Carroll, a co-founder of EdTech data company Clever, Chantel Paulson, a co-founder and general partner at Reach Capital, and Stephen Katz, strategic advisor of education at the Hearst Corporation. Now, don't worry, we'll keep you on top of who each individual is as we play clips of their comments. But what you might actually want to worry about, EdTech entrepreneurs, is this. Knowing how the actual privacy laws affect your practices. Now, we'll let Emily Tabatabai, the ORIC expert, explain first. And just as an FYI, there's a bit of an old-timey feel to this recording, as if it's from the 1950s. But we kind of liked it, so we decided to keep the sound that way. On to you, Emily. Okay, well, you know, it's a really good thing that I brought my cheat sheet because right now there are, by my count, 28 different states that have enacted legislation in the last 18 months. Um, I advise on all of them, and they all start to blur a little bit because naturally none of them are the exact same. 
And when, when I heard I was going to be asked very specific questions about California, I thought, thank God I have my chart. Um, I'm a practitioner, and it's difficult for me to remember the ins and outs of all of the different laws. I can only imagine how overwhelming it is to be an ed tech company who's trying to operate on a nationwide level. So it's not easy. It's not just you. Um, California specifically has two major laws that have been passed uh, last year. One of them went into effect this past January, and that's the regulation that requires all third-party ed tech vendors to have certain specific contractual um, obligations in their contracts with schools. If those contracts with the schools don't have these particular contractual obligations, the entire contract can be rendered null and void. It's a pretty big deal. Now, they give you uh, that the, the, the statute actually says if it's not rectified after a notice and cure period, so your contracts aren't automatically invalid, but if a school district comes to you and says, where are these provisions, you better fix that and you better fix them real quick and make sure that you can actually stand behind them, make sure that you have the right provisions in place. So that one, let me just give you the absolute rundown. Um, that one specifically says you have to have provisions relating to um, the fact that the information is under the control of the school, that the school actually still owns the student data, and that's um, disconcerting for a lot of ed tech companies who want to own as much data as they possibly can. Wait, here's one of the most interesting things to note, and there's a big dollar figure attached to it. There's a description of breach notice provisions. So that's a really big deal as well, and I can talk about breach notice all night long, but it's something that vendors need to think very hard about because the average cost of rectifying a breach last year was $6 million. That includes only breaches that had up to 100,000 records. So that's not Target, that's not Neiman Marcus, that's not Adobe, that's little guys, $6 million. Y'all don't want to pay that. Well, it definitely sounds like there are a lot of can'ts in there, lots of cannots. And when Betsy Corcoran asked the crowd of panel onlookers who was finding out about these laws for the first time, a number of people raised their hands, both educators and entrepreneurs. So then, whose responsibility is it to inform them about these laws? What do you think, Blake? I wonder, hmm, maybe the company's investors? So, right, that's kind of what I was wondering. And in fact, Betsy posed that exact question to Chantel Paulson of Reach Capital. Betsy comes in first with a question here. Chantel, you advise companies, you invest in companies. What's the message to your companies? What do you tell your companies when they come charging into you and they say, I've got a great idea for a free app that we're going to give to teachers. Yeah, Betsy, I think my mic on. Can you hear that? Okay. Um, so I think you asked a great question first, just about making sure people are aware of what's going on in the policies. And so our best advice is to be proactive around these things and so stay on top of all the policies that are happening. Come to events like this. Uh, make sure that you know what's coming down the pipeline. And by being proactive, you can have plans in place. So there's a plan A, there's plan B, and there's plan C, that when these policies do get enacted, this is how you're going to react. And we also advise people um, to just really think about the risks of not making modifications to adhere to these different policies. And so those risks include time, and they include money, you know, not only this legal ramifications, but maybe risk to your brand, your brand reputation, which will ultimately 
uh, impact your business. And so really thinking about what are the long-term impacts of not really making modifications to adhere to these policies. But I want to go back to a question that was raised in the first panel, which is when a company is very small, it's a baby, they're just thinking about the idea, they come to you, they come to you guys in particular, and they say, we have this cool idea, will you invest as a seed round? Are you asking them those questions at that moment? Yeah, a lot of it is. Sorry, again, okay. So a lot of it is pushing people even at the design level. And so really having companies think from the design stage, how am I making sure that I'm taking some of these policies into practice? So I can give a couple of examples of ways that you can make sure that you're kind of asking the right questions. So um, Melissa talked a lot about um, kind of what data do you absolutely have to have and collect. So in your tool, what data are you asking for and why? And if you don't need that data, especially if it's personally identifiable information or if it's sensitive data, just make sure that you're creating a product that you're not collecting that data. Where is that data housed? Um, where are you storing that data? So we've advised companies, for example, who you know took more time, more money, to not host data um, at certain servers but make sure that the data is you know, hosted at the school level. Um, other considerations are just, you know, you know how is the data, like I said, uh, building infrastructure um, so you know kind of who has access to that data uh, early on as well as just um, your strategy and your business model. So are you, like we said, uh, are you going to use mod, uh, a business model that will rely on access to that data um, and thinking strategically about what are business models that does not rely on access to that data? Well, that's all well and good, and it's important to have advisors helping you out with all of this. But at the end of the day, what really matters is how the companies themselves act on these laws, what they choose to do or not to. And one of the areas most scrutinized by schools and parents in the past few months has been company data policies. How are they written? Are they actually carried out? Now, to get more insight into this, Betsy asked Stephen Katz, the strategic advisor of education at the Hearst Corporation, whether his company would ever be deterred from acquiring a startup if they have a shaky data policy. Well, I think the answer is we wouldn't be interested in any company that hasn't really created a foundation that we can depend on in terms of entering the market. Where We are in the market a little bit. We've made some recent investments in the space, but our aspirations are to really examine this as a big opportunity. And so we're looking primarily, at least initially, at businesses that are either already scaled businesses, which have had to address some of these needs, or in the earlier stage, people who have a great awareness for what this issue, uh, the challenges of this issue. And that includes uh, sort of principles around transparency, uh, around stakeholders being able to have control of their information, around portability of the information. There's a whole set of themes. I should Chantal mentioned a few that we, I think uh, we agree with almost all the ones you mentioned. And that, and that might mean that there's a whole series of businesses that are doing really, really well, but they haven't gotten to the point where they have to address some of these issues. And that might mean that we would have to sort of delay or, or kind of vector away from those businesses at that time. What portion of the new companies that you've been at this for about a year or so with Hearst? Okay. So let's guess that over the course of the year, you've probably met a pretty large number of companies. What percentage of the companies that you're meeting have data policy standards that you think are robust enough that they're interesting to continue this conversation with? What percent? Well, for the scale businesses, I think it's pretty high. For the earlier stage companies, I think it's, it's, it's not clear. I mean, we, you know, we haven't 
gone far enough with the number of them to sort of require them to start talking about that in detail. But where we get we we get concerned are business models that aren't aligned with that issue. So and there are many businesses, really successful ones, that adopt say a freemium model, which could lead them to go into directions that would be a challenge for the businesses to succeed uh, and would be tempting to not have to address these. And I think there's a large amount of that category. We've intentionally uh, not pursued those companies at this time for that reason. So you wouldn't be interested in talking with a startup with a freemium model and a lack of a clear data policy? If both would, if, if neither, if it had, it was a freemium company, the bar is higher, and without a data policy, it certainly would be not meeting that bar. So sure, no one's perfect. But as Stephen said, there's a bar to be met, and it can be met. What that means is, companies, this is an issue that you need to pay attention to, and you may end up regretting it if you don't. Dan Carroll of Clever, who's also a former educator, seems to have a lot of faith in those entrepreneurs out there, Blake. Though Stephen seemed skeptical of some of the companies that Hearst entertained, Dan was very forthright in sharing that Clever's partners, at least when they came to work with them first, have done their due diligence when it comes to privacy policies. In fact, it's a requirement if you want to be a Clever partner. Um, Dan, you are in the business, as I said, of connecting at want to connect with schools, with the schools, with the SIS systems in those schools. Do you have any idea of what percentage of the companies that you're connecting in have data policies? 100%. Okay. Why is it 100%? So um, uh, one of the re- requirements to be on the Clever platform, and I'm, Emily's going to keep me honest, Emily's actually our uh, advisor when it comes to these, these challenges, so please make sure I don't cross the line here. But one of the one of the requirements to be on the Clever platform is that you have, as a company, policies and practice that ensure that the data that you are collecting is being used for educational purposes under the direction of the school district. So if you are a company who wants to connect to school data systems to market to students or because you want to do uh, research or because you want to do any other things that are not serving the educational interest of the student, you are welcome to have that conversation with folks like Melissa, but Clever is not the way that you're going to connect to the SFUSD data system. But if you are an application that is working on supporting students in their learning or supporting teachers in their instruction, and you need some information about students and teachers to do that, which is a perfectly acceptable thing, um, Clever is a platform that's great for making that really easy and integrated. Melissa mentioned in her comments about how teachers want an integrated experience where they can just push a button and the students have accounts and everything's connected with one username and password and everything's connected. That's the experience Clever provides, but only if you're using the data that comes to our platform to serve the educational interests of the students and the teachers. Ooh, that was some real-life dramatic tension. Yep. I agree with Betsy's skepticism, though, as she asked Dan if any company had ever been taken off their approval list. You know, it's also worth noting, to be honest, that these privacy issues really aren't anything new. In fact, the big question standing out in my mind is, why are all of these concerns from the parent community coming to the surface now more strongly than ever? I mean, do you think they've been driving this argument this whole time? I don't know if it's just parents. I think it's a combination of an explosion of ed tech and rising parent awareness. Okay. 
Take what Melissa Dodd, the CTO of SFUSD, said on the first panel of the evening. She said that she gets the most student data questions from tech worker parents. I mean, it's not surprising, given her district. Mm, Well, perhaps what this really comes down to, then, is a question of educating and whether parents and schools, and the companies, too, need to understand exactly how the student's data is being used or not used. I'm all for safety, but I'm wondering if all these arguments are just coming out of a lack of understanding. Well, Betsy actually asked that question of an educator in the audience. She spoke to Craig Blackburn, the Director of Technology Programs and Instructional Support for the Santa Clara County Office of Education. Here's what he had to say. To paraphrase, it's less about the parents and more about the law. Occasionally I I help founders... um not through any organization, but, you know, I'll get a one-off every once in a while come and say, I really have this intriguing idea, and here's what I want it to do. I want it to be able to track student information because, you know, that's so important in um, connecting a student to remedial type of resources. So I want to be able to pull all this data together for the student and have um, – have it linked directly to, you know, whatever the platform is that's going to provide some remedial lessons. And, you know, but I want all this student data and I want to be able to sell services like um, tutorial services or something else. Well, that's a fantastic idea. It's just not going to be possible under under the law and, you know, should it um, in, that re- in that respect, no. All right. So all this conversation aside, either way, at the end of the day, student data is still being collected. I mean, when I was a teacher, we collected it, whether by schools or companies. Collecting data helps when designing curriculum and building out lesson plans. Any teacher can tell you that. So what is the plan going forward? I mean, how do schools choose at least some ed tech companies And not say no to everyone just out of fear. I mean, if I were an administrator, I know I would need some support and guidance into this process. And we got you there, Mary Jo. Betsy coerced out of the crowd a very specific practice that could be utilized. And it came from the educators in the audience. A vetting process. One that's conducted by an external agency. Here's Craig Blackburn for what that could look like, followed up by Melissa Dodd. Um, You know, in California, we used to have a, a entity out of the Department of Ed called C-Learn, and they would do a lot of vetting of assessment programs, online learning programs, and other digital programs. Uh, Funding for that got dropped, the program went away. But I think what would be helpful to your point is those um, agencies that could put like a good housekeeping seal of approval or whatever the badge is on this is an approved app, and that would that would give teachers at least something to look for that it has been approved, it has been vetted by an agency that's trusted, and that would make um, the whole process much more nimble. But just to take that for a moment, I mean, Melissa, you're from Boston. You know that Cambridge has one of the most kind of comprehensive data privacy protection policies written by all those lovely parents from MIT, right, um, with maybe a few Harvard lawyers thrown in. Um, would you feel comfortable? How, how does that compare with what we have in California? Do you think that those two work so well together that, uh, you know, if you had one sort of housekeeping seal that said, oh, this can be good for Cambridge and Boston, would, would Cambridge and California? So, like, I mean, I think that that vetting process or that seal of approval can definitely be helpful because to the point that was raised earlier, 
you know, districts and schools really don't have the capacity to do that on their own. But I think to the point that was raised earlier of how do you go from, you know, the super slow and super fast, what's the plan? You know, oftentimes um, we're focused on what's the latest and greatest technology and how do I bring everything in and, oh, if it's so easy, I can click on something and bring it into my classroom. But really it comes back to what am I looking to accomplish? What do my students need? What's my educational plan? And how does the technology connect in? Because to the point earlier, if we want the tech, you know, we, if we believe in and we the power that technology can have and the potential, that's really you know, we see it at its best when there is a thoughtful plan, when there is the education, when there is that transparency, when there is that communication. So something in between, I'd say, where's, the, where's that plan process in there? Educators, if you are looking for that vetting process but you don't know where to start, don't fear. Other districts are attempting to create their own processes, whether internally or with an external agency, and some of them have been successful. Successful meaning that teachers, parents, and district officials all agree on the process. Exactly. That's right, Blake. So if you're looking for support in that arena, don't hesitate to contact us at feedback at edsurge.com. We'll introduce you to the right people. A huge thanks to Emily Tabatabai, Dan Carroll, Chantel Paulson, and Stephen Katz for lending their voices to our panel and this podcast. A big thank you as well to Tim Hudson and all the other writers who contributed to EdSurge this week. And get your engines ready, ladies and gents. This coming weekend, we're hosting our biggest EdSurge summit of the season right here at our home in the Silicon Valley. Teachers and administrators come get free catered breakfast and lunch, win one of 15 devices, and check out 30 companies that make tools for math, English language arts, and every other subject area. And don't forget about the professional credit. That's right. All that and more can be yours October 23rd and 24th at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. We've still got free tickets, but they're going fast. Sign up now on the EdSurge Tech for Schools Summits page. We'll both be there podcasting live from the floor. Come say hello. Blake's going to be the one with the beard. And MJ's the one with the red lipstick. Michael Winders will be there too, swinging a microphone and ready to chat. He's moving into a new apartment right now, but he'll be back on the podcast next week. I'm seriously so excited for the summit. I can barely contain it. I probably should go calm myself down by dousing myself with a bucket of ice-cold water. The Ice Bucket Challenge is so last summer, MJ. We're done. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm a completely dry Mary Jo Matta. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.